0: Our second reading of scripture comes from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again, A second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The title of this morning's sermon is Catching Up to the Spirit. Catching Up to the Spirit. During the summer between my freshman and sophomore years in college, I worked as an intern on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC. And with no offense meant to the many fine PCUSA churches there in the Metro DC area, I found myself drawn to Sunday services at St. John's Episcopal Church near my apartment. One week, I heard a sermon there in which the priest, Reverend Luis Leon, began with a simple statement. God has no grandchildren, only children. God has no grandchildren, only children. It sounded odd, but then he began to explain. God speaks to people in each generation to bear witness to peace, love and justice. Maybe God is calling you to participate in God's story, not someone else who's older or wiser or more equipped, and you get to tag along, but you. What would it look like to answer? That sermon stuck with me for the past 20 years, and sometimes I'll say it to students in our Princeton Presbyterians Fellowship. God has no grandchildren, only children. There's something in that saying that I think gets at the radical freedom of God. The Holy Spirit can call anyone to get involved in the work of healing that the world needs. They don't need permission from a parent or a religious institution, a political authority to do what is right in their time and place. What we can learn from the past, the Spirit of God is alive in this time too, and our task is to try and catch up to what God is doing today. This morning's reading from the Book of Acts is about members of two communities between whom reconciliation seems impossible. Luke introduces us to Cornelius, a high-ranking officer in the Roman army. He's stationed in a bustling coastal city called Caesarea Maritima, the epicenter of Roman life in ancient Judea. He is what, the, what is called in Latin, the paterfamilias of a traditional Roman household, the patron of a complicated network that might include a spouse and children, extended relatives, business associates, slaves and servants, visiting guests and soldiers under his command. By Roman standards, He is a pillar of his community, honorable for his sense of duty to those depending on him. Cornelius' life could not be more different than Peter's. Since the resurrection of Jesus, Peter has been planting new churches all over Judea and Galilee, often on the run from the authorities. After raising a woman named Tabitha to life in the coastal town of Joppa, Peter decides to stay with a tanner named Simon, someone whose workshop uses the bodies of animals to soften and treat into making leather. It's not a seaside resort. It's really, really stinky. Peter seems to be a guest in a house that is so stinky that it has to stand on the coastline outside the town limits for the sea breeze and the isolation from everybody else. There are deeper divisions that keep these two men apart than their immediate circumstances. The common wisdom was that by custom, by religious conviction, by personal preference, Romans and Jews, like Cornelius and Peter, did not associate with each other. They did not visit one another's homes. They did not share meals. They avoided talking to one another if they could help it. But neither Peter nor Cornelius' lives fit into these neat boxes. Luke describes Cornelius as a God-fearer, someone who deeply loves and admires Jewish faith and life. He has not made a full conversion to Judaism, but he devotes himself to two markers of Jewish piety, regular prayer to God and generous almsgiving to people in need. And Peter likewise has engaged with Romans in positive ways before. The seventh chapter of Luke's gospel tells of Jesus healing a centurion servant and commending his faith. Peter has seen his teacher and friend hold up a despised Roman officer as a model for trust in God. While Cornelius prays in a private room of his bustling townhouse near the town plaza of Caesarea Maritima, and Peter climbs up onto the roof of his smelly guest house to pray and to get away from the workshop, both men experience the presence of God in a vision. The Spirit of God speaks to them and tells them to seek one another out, They hear God's voice and set out to find each other. And that's the end of our reading, but it's not the end of the story, because the book of Acts goes on to describe this astonishing encounter in which Peter and Cornelius listen to one another and see each other as human beings bearing the image of God. Cornelius, whose life has been marked by a profound longing for God, is told by Jesus' closest friend that it is true that he is precious in God's sight, that he belongs to the family of God. And Peter, who has been told to avoid and be afraid of Roman centurions his entire life, has this realization that God has broken past the barriers of religious tradition to include anyone who hears and says yes to the Spirit's call. In their time... Peter and Cornelius were able to acknowledge God's ability to do something new between two human beings despite passionate enmities that had persisted between their communities for generations. The signs of God's work included people listening to one another, engaging in dialogue with each other, respecting each other as a fellow child of God. When it comes to the hard, sometimes seemingly impossible work of reconciliation, maybe it's true to say that God has no grandchildren, only children. It comes to us today. This week, I found myself at a loss for what to say as we reckon with the news of conflict in Israel and Palestine. It was sobering to listen to my chaplain colleagues, Rabbi Gil Steinloff and Rabbi Eitan Webb share about the fear, the anger, the trauma of a terrorist organization like Hamas committing acts of horrific violence against civilians. These are fresh and deep wounds that are layered upon generations of conflict and an even longer history of anti-Semitism. We have a responsibility to speak out and condemn anti-Semitism in all its forms. This weekend, Israeli Defense Forces have ordered an evacuation of more than one million Palestinians from the northern half of Gaza, a demand that the United Nations has described as impossible. We have seen on the news, the grief and suffering of the Palestinian people as they contend with hospitals without power. No access to clean water to drink or fuel for vehicles to take people to safety. The voices of Middle Eastern colleagues and friends from Palestine and Lebanon and Egypt come to mind and their longing for Palestinian refugees and members of Gaza and the West Bank to live in a free and just society. Right now, hope for peace seems bleak amid escalating violence in Israel and Palestine. What can neighbors, neighbors in Princeton, neighbors from a different faith tradition, neighbors who know and love Jews and Palestinians, what can we do in a time like this? I think that we begin by reminding ourselves that God cares deeply about what is happening right now in our world. God is not indifferent or far off from us. God is grieving with us and calling upon anyone who will listen to join in the work of peace. And the work of peace involves seeing the image of God that lies deeper than the divisions we have inherited for ourselves and our neighbors. You and I, members worshiping here at Nassau Presbyterian Church in central New Jersey, we are not going to resolve the deep political crises and escalating war in Israel-Palestine. And yet, the Spirit of God comes to us and calls us not to stand apart or pretend that it doesn't matter to us. Because our Jewish neighbors are grieving. Our Palestinian neighbors are grieving. These are people we know and work with, and love, and they're in deep pain. When we love someone who is in pain, we commit to the work of helping them feel seen and heard. Like Cornelius and Peter, we can refuse to accept broad assumptions and easy stereotypes about communities that are different from us. We can choose instead to see them first and foremost as human beings who are beloved by God. We can gather the courage to listen to them, to sit beside them in their hurt, and engage in dialogue as friends. We can do the work of learning about this crisis, its deep history and its current challenges from respected sources. And when we have done these things, we can find ways to get involved that contribute to a vision of a just and free society for everyone. Showing up, listening, learning about the crisis, discerning appropriate ways to help. These practices are the beginnings of understanding and solidarity. As we said before, God doesn't have any grandchildren, only children. God asks people in each generation to bear witness to peace, love, and justice. Maybe God is calling you to participate in God's story not someone else who's older or wiser or more equipped and you get to tag along, but you, what would it look like to answer? Amen.